0: Hey folks, and welcome to our Gem Pursuit podcast. Uh, this is episode three in season one, and I thought today we we're gonna do something a little bit different. Uh, I recently recorded a, a podcast with Ross Hannon in his podcast called In Place, which is a really great podcast, and I definitely recommend you, you have a listen to it. Um, we were talking about kind of shopkeeping and the jewellery business, score Townhouse, and the kind of sense of place that you get when you're actually in this 18th century building. So it's a bit different and has a bit of a different tone, but I, I thought I'll share it with you here because there's some really good points in it, uh, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's, ha- let's have a listen.
1: Paris Court Centre subverts all expectations of what a shopping centre is supposed to be, not only because of its unique setting, an 18th century Georgian building, but because of the eclectic characters who are drawn to trade there. It probably boasts more craftspeople per square meter than any other building in the country. It's full of goldsmiths, silversmiths, gemologists, horologists, pastry chefs, painters, knitters, seamstresses, tailors, botanists, designers and engravers. In this series, we'll hear their stories. This episode focuses on Courtville, a vintage jewellery shop tucked away in the corner of the Antiques Gallery. When you get here, you see the sign over the door says, history is just the beginning, and the window display is full of gleaming gemstones. It just seems like an impossibly perfect fit in Powers Court, almost like it grew here. The shop's been here since the centre opened in 81, but like this 250-year-old building, Its story covers a much longer span of time than that. I spent one Thursday morning in the shop with Matty Weldon, who's the owner, and a gemologist called Alice Ketcher. We talked about loads of things, but mainly family businesses, why people love antiques, the value of old-world craftsmanship, the mystery of Irish crown jewels, and the allure of gemstones. So, here we go into the world of Courtville.
0: So you should keep 10% of your wealth in swag, which is silver, wine, antiques and gold. So, you know, i probably have about one bottle of wine, it would be my swag, <laughs> But, but uh, well, if so you consider the shop, I'm way over invested in, in antiques. But. I trained as an accountant with KPMG, which was a great grounding, I think, for anyone who wants to go into any sort of business. But then following that, uh, I worked in my family business, which is a jewelry shop, antique jewelry shop. Then, um, after a while, after I did uh, almost three years there, I went out by myself and I was doing antique shows. I had no shop, so I was just going geez, all, all over the country, Cork, Kerry, Clare, Tipperary, I went up the north, at the west, Galway, Midlands, everywhere. Doing antique shows and then this shop came up for sale the owner was retiring so she was looking to sell and i was lucky enough uh, to acquire it so we're just over two years now but i was thinking these important things you do in your life are these big moments there's always uh, like external things happening that help us remember like i remember that to sign that deal it was delayed because of the snow the lady Grania pierce who's very knowledgeable the antiques dealer who was selling she she lived up the Wicklow Mountains and uh, sure couldn't, couldn't get the car out of the driveway. Anyway, I managed to get through and we got it signed and I hope we've done her proud with it so far anyway. We've kept a focus on the antiques side of it. People love antique jewellery and the skills are all held by older people. So older people know about antiques, they know about the, the styles, the settings, the history but I think what's beautiful about what we do is that we have that because I've, I've been lucky enough to train with Bronte to train with Jimmy Weld and my father and you know, my brother Garrett gave me a lot of advice and John my brother John and sister Joan all who are in the business and who are older than me we have an older person's knowledge of the industry but we've got a younger person's take on it when I was younger we watched Antique Roadshow definitely and yeah there'd always be people saying oh I think that's going to be X or that's going to be Y uh, price wise and yeah we'd, we'd invariably Get a, get a hold of it but then there's also the we talk about like our businesses and kind of like you know you know there's always a healthy competitive rivalry because my brother and my sister run an auction house in Dublin John, John Weldon auctioneers I obviously have um, my shop here uh, Courtville and then my brother and my dad are on Weldon's on Clarence Street and even my cousins are here in Paris Court Townhouse CM Weldon so you don't have to oh let's talk shopping it's just what it's what we're all about it just happens we I mean, I you, we we've other interests obviously but uh, it's just it's your typical family business I suppose like whether you're is whether you're a shopkeeper who owns a jewellery shop and, and that's what we are we're shopkeepers like so or whether you're you know your family fish and chip shop it permeates like everything A little, uh, it's really unusual because it, it is actually a big enterprise. Like, there's 40 over 40 tenants mm-hmm. in here. Uh, it's a historic building. There's some, but I think the, the ethos of it, it feels more like a community based thing without getting too touchy feely about it. Like, we know all the security guards, we know the management, you know, we can chat to them about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like
2: living in a cul de sac. That's what it's like.
0: It's like a little microcosm of society. It's like, sometimes there's, there's the competition, sometimes and there's
2: happiness, <clears throat> sometimes there's, you know, we need to support each other because somebody is going through something. All ages. <laughs> all ages. All
0: ages and all <laughs> the mixes of people. Like, I love it here. I think it's great. And the centre very supportive. and
2: Cultures, nationalities. There's a lot of local everything.
0: local businesses. Like, you get real independent traders here, which I think is really cool. You know, I don't know if you ever go walking in the hills or anything like that. You know, on our steps here in Dublin, we have, you know, amazing hills in Wicklow. And if, if you go up to... I love walking in the hills and, you know, experiencing the, the way the, the countryside, say, like, uh, Loch Bray upper and Loch Brae lower and the beautiful hike there. And it's right in our doorstep. And Power Score to me, is kind of like that. A lot of people don't really kind of know... They know it's here, but they don't really know what's, what, what it's about but there's a real sense of place in it. The the building, this parish was made in like 1770s. Like it it does transport you back, but there's a, a, you're grounded in the building. Like there's the old walls here. I'm looking out now just across the courtyard and you can see the beautiful old walls. Okay, so they've got our new signs up on it and stuff like that. But it's totally unique and authentic. And the far side of the house from where we're sitting now is one of the oldest parts of, one of the old Georgia buildings, a lot of them that were lost. Um, but thankfully, this will still stands. And I think the way it works here, you have a lot of local traders. Everyone's kind of connected, and there's a lot of there's a lot of camaraderie, and a lot of us are in business competitively, of course. But it's not people people often ask me to say, "Oh God, you know the seven Jewelers there, It must be very, must be hard business." But it's not. I think we're competitive. We're not. We're all friends, like you know, and we all kind of do look out for each other and. It's a great sense of community, in the truest sense of the word. There's an old Chinese proverb that says a shopkeeper must have a happy face. You've got to have, a shop has to be a happy shop. People come in; they sense that they enjoy their their time there, having a seamless experience with people when they come in. And I suppose that's what I got from my youth. Like I remember, growing up, we'd be in the in the shop; we'd always have to stand out the back, so we wouldn't be on the shop floor. We'd have to stand out the back, when people were in there, and uh, like I don't, you'd always hear the how to deal with people, and um, you'd hear like that good customer service. It's just ingrained in you. It's, it's, I even know it's how I talk to people outside of the shop. I'm kind of... You can't... It's just how you are. How you are, like... I love just being in the shop and, you know, setting up a window, dealing with people who come in with their queries. And stuff. You have to like people. And you have to understand people, I think. And you won't get on with everybody, but you kind of have to... That's just the way you click with some people. And you, you, but you you know, that's why you have different staff.
2: Matthew and I are good at different things. Matthew is yeah. charming. And I am... stylist more than anything there's certain trends that come out and a lot of people don't know how to accomplish a certain look or are scared to look at antique jewelry because they don't know how to wear it or they're scared that it's gonna look like they're wearing their grandmother's jewelry and that it's old and out of fashion so it's just about finding like what's on trend now and showing people how to wear the product in the way that is fashionable and in style. We show how you could, you can use things that are like from the Victorian period, like 1837 to 1901, that particular time period, how to use those particular items in a more fashionable way today. I got my first um, break in jewelry when I moved to Ireland when I was 18 and really with antique jewellery you need exposure to it so it's not so much going to school for it which i did go to school to learn about the gemstones but antique jewellery it needs to be something that you see a lot of so you have to handle the jewellery you have to see the different cuts you have to know the different stylings of the period you need to be able to look at something and go like these are extremely old cuts And this is a silver setting. We've got rose cut diamonds. We've got silver settings. And then we've got yellow gold with silver. So the likelihood is straight away that this is a Victorian piece. Because it's the same styling. It's the cut of diamonds that they used during that time. And it's silver settings. Whereas once you go into the next period or the period before this. They don't use these particular cuts with open backs. And silver and gold together sometimes you look at a piece and you go oh that's art deco and then you have a closer look at it and you're like this the the gemstone cut isn't right and i can see markings from where it's actually being cast it's a reproduction so it's like those those little things you can usually spot it quite quickly we can identify it by looking at it saying yes the gold is rich, they're the right motifs, um, and then also using museum catalogues to kind of identify the exact time period from the ancient Egyptian um, time period, that it, the kingdoms, which one it was from. But the, most people who are purchasing items or artefacts like that want to have a certificate to say that it's specifically from a certain era. The Viking pieces, a lot of people used to use... Um, the twisted metal because the um, Vikings it's known as hack jewelry so uh, basically Vikings weren't very sentimental when it came to jewelry they were either used it as a talisman or they used it as what they know is known as hack jewelry so they'd wear rings and they'd wear big um amulets on their on their on themselves and also Uh, big large cuffs around their arms and a lot of the time you would find that there would be pieces hacked off of it because when they would go to different countries gold would be a universal um, a universal way to trade so they would hack off pieces of gold for food for water um, and so a lot of the jewelry would be kind of what they say damaged in that way but that actually tells that story as well it's a different story but it's obviously every every piece of jewellery, what makes them valuable is not only the gemstones, but the story that they have behind them.
0: Jewellery now, a lot of it is mass produced, so the technology has developed to make it cheaper, but it's not better. You can find rings from the 1920s and they'll be the best made jewellery you'll ever see. Like, I mean, seriously. They will just have intricate detail. They'll have... The gemstones will be cut to perfection. The design of it will be beautifully done. And it comes from like... When you think of the 20s, think of Great Gatsby. It was a very luxurious time. And that is captured in the jewellery. A diamond rough crystal is the shape of two pyramids stuck together with the bases so from that particular shape you can usually cut two modern round brilliance kind of one on top of another uh, but they have uh, they have computer programs that analyze the rough crystal and they will compute it and tell you what is the most commercially valuable way to cut this rough crystal whereas historically what they would have done is they would have got that rough crystal and cut the best stone out of it which I mean the wastage would be more, probably, but you'd end up with a, a more luxurious, finer stone at the end of it. But most of the rough crystals now today are cut using those 3D programs that can tell you if you cut, you know, two, ro- two round diamonds, you might get an emerald cut out of another piece. But no, they would have cut a cushion cut, one big cushion cut out of it. And that's where the difference lies. Um, it's not commercial, but it wasn't the way they thought. Uh, whereas today... You know, it's it's really mechanical. They buy in a bag of diamonds. They all get analysed. This is the most crucial value. They cut them. It, they're set in jewelry by machines, and then you get these mass-produced things. An efficient, slick marketing program. And they sell it. Uh, whereas back in the back in the day, it, w- it was make the best piece of jewelry, and there'd be relationship marketing. If you want, they'd say, you know, we've got this amazing piece in. You have to see it. And when I'll show you and we'll go back to the shop here and have another look I'll show you what I mean do I see that jewellery today like from and the answer is no in all your normal jewellery shops no that's why we specialise in the old ones only in your high end Cartier high end Tiffany & Co high end Van Cleef Arpels you see that and that stuff it's not uh it doesn't come to market. Like, they have the private events and they sell their clients and things like that.
2: The dross or the things that were pushed to the wayside as not gem quality are now treated and heated to look like natural gemstones. So they're not of the same quality as gemstones in Victorian period pieces um, or in Edwardian or Art Deco pieces. So you see, like, the colours of nature. You know, it was never supposed to be... You look in a window and all of the sapphires are exactly the same color. It was never supposed to be like that. That's not what the Earth creates. The Earth creates all of the colors in the blue spectrum, all of the colors in the in the green spectrum. And that's what makes the jewelry beautiful, is that it has a different slight differences to it. Um, for me, I love color and design put together perfectly in something that is worn perfectly on the body, fits you, is wearable, functional, almost like wearable art. That's what I love.
0: Our gem is in his 90s and he is the apprentice. Now I think, I think it actually is, uh, I th- it is a running joke, right? Is that the master is still alive and he's only, he's only three or four years older than them, right? But uh, it's kind of, it's, it just shows the culture. You're always learning. And it's a beautiful thing, but it takes a certain type of mentality. But that kind of tradesperson in the jewellery is, is very rare. Like, there's antiques, even an antique dealer, it's an apprenticeship. Because, you know, on a given day, I could spend, it's not every day, but I could spend 35, 40 grand on jewellery. I mean, it's serious business. You, can, you could get yourself in a big hole very quickly if you're not super sharp. They were they were stolen years ago, and actually, uh, uh, my grandfather was involved in trying to recover them. He went to London actually to meet with Shackleton, who was the brother of the explorer uh, Ernest Shackleton. Yeah, uh, you know, it was very cloak and dagger. He had a letter in advance that told him to bring money, which the a vast sum of money equivalent today of something like ten million, and he was to request it from the, the state or the the government, and you know then he'd obviously do some sort of exchange and get the jewellery back, but um, never saw the jewellery or anything like that, so no transaction happened. But he went to London to meet your anyway, so they would have known the crown jewellery was missing, so they probably tried to create a situation where they gave the impression that they could recover it when they couldn't, I don't think. so. But no one knows. I mean, it could have been the case. No one knows to this day. And the jewellery has not been found.
2: Sitting under somebody's... Somebody's kitchen table. I don't even know it.
0: Could be sitting in a house somewhere in Dublin or in the country.
2: In a safe in a that thing. can't be opened.
0: Buried in the garden. Who knows? These are the things that keep you guys awake at night.
2: <laughs> I mean, the the thing is, uh, as much as the, uh, the Irish crown jewels are a mystery because they've been missing, um, I've seen pictures and I'm not like... Hugely wowed.
0: <laughs> we also had the Russian crown jewels in Ireland, not all of them. I mean, those
2: are I'd be those are impressed by. Right. The jewelry is incredible. Yeah. Like, Russian jewelry, it's, you know, you have to remember the people who were living on top in Russia were living on everybody else's means. So everybody else was in extreme poverty and they were like giving each other Faberge eggs, which had no. Purpose but decorative. So they were, they had these incredible pieces of jewellery that even today people look at and just think, wow. They can't recreate them. No, they can't. They can't fix them if they're broken or if they're stolen or lost. There's no way to ever kind of recover the same like for like.
0: Like some gemstones have their own fabled history, right? It's the Hope Diamond. The blue diamond that was, you know, gone through many hands and seemed to bring the people uh, bad luck who had it. On the on the flip side, that's the diamonds that have people have owned that have seemed to bring good luck. Like the Kohinoor is, I believe, in the uh, scepter of the English crown jewel at the moment. Um, but the reason it's called the Koh-i-Noor is that the the gentleman who was nobility, I think he's from the Middle East, when he saw it, he Shout out in his native language, Koinor, which means the mountain of light. This is how I describe gemstones. If a child comes into the shop who has knows, clearly they know nothing about jewelry, right? And I mean literally two years old. You know, they're just walking or whatever. They'll just come up to the counter and they'll just point, at, and they'll always point at like these beautiful stones. They, and it, it's like human nature. They're drawn to stones, and. That's why I'm very confident about the outlook of the business, because it's human behavior. People are drawn to gemstones. But they, they hold such special, like, and I genuinely mean, it's like such emotional, deep, sentimental value, these jewels. So what, what are the most valuable gems? The ones with the best color in, in Asia. And in the, they used to set rubies into their armor, they believe they'd give you protection in battle. Uh, Amethysts were believed to stop you getting intoxicated. they they have these huge powers. And I think children just see the world as it is in front of them. They don't have these filters a lot of the time.
1: I'll just read you this quote. It said, In other words, precious stones are precious because they bear a faint resemblance to the glowing marvel seen with the inner eye of the visionary. The view of that world, and this is Plato, is a vision of blessed beholders. For To see things as they are in themselves is bliss
0: unalloyed and inexpressible. Everything that... You see, everyone... uh, Okay, so I'm an antiques jewellery dealer, right? And everything that everyone says in this world, you kind of take it with a, a filter of their perspective. Mm-hmm. So, I am totally biased, right? Because my narrative is I obviously have a passion for these jewellery, like, I think I do anyway, but it's so when people listen to it, they're like oh yeah, this, you know, this person has an interest in it, which is true, but it, it is actually fundamental human nature. We're drawn to these gems when we were in caves when cleopatra and the pharaohs in in, in important times and you know in your in the pharaohs tombs and anything to relate with important moments marriages funerals they always refer back to these gems so it's it's much deeper than Jewelry.
1: This episode was produced by me Ross Hannan thank you to Powers Court Centre, to Matthew Weldon, Elise Ketcher and to Catherine Tool and Coakley for the music and we'll see you next time